Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, today we're going to be talking about William Lee Neal. And what is so interesting about this man is his major scheme was financial fraud, right? He would scam people out of their money and pretend to live this sort of like high roller lifestyle. Seemingly out of nowhere, really, he decides to end several of his cons all at once via murder. Anyway, it's a very bizarre story. So William Lee Neal was a man of many aliases. Another name he went by was William Cody Neal. Sometimes he went by Bill, sometimes Cody, and sometimes Wild Bill Cody. The list probably stretches beyond what anyone truly knows. I'm just going to call him Neal in this episode. So the reason we're talking about him is because he was unfortunately an excellent con artist turned murderer. And in the end, no con man can have friends, right? I think what really ended his crimes was he made a couple friends and he didn't want to kill them. Wow, what a great friend, Neil. Before I get started, I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer Podcast. I am your hostess, Haley Lira, and I love doing a true crime podcast. Again, though, this is a true crime podcast that discusses sensitive and heinous crimes. I try not to be too dark or gory, but listener discretion is still advised. And if you haven't already, most of you haven't, please go leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget, you can find photos pertaining to each case, including this one, on my Facebook, Storytime Slayer, or my Instagram, Story underscore Time underscore Slayer. Thanks for being here, and let's just dive in. The way I'm going to break this case down, because there's a lot of meat to it, is I'm going to go in chronological order of Neil's life and crimes because it's a slow buildup also. So let's dive in. Neil was born October 7th, 1955. He describes his parents as loving and nurturing people who did raise him and his siblings to have a lot of respect for others. Now, I don't know a whole lot about his dad, but I do know his dad was the chief warrant officer in the Air Force until Neil was about nine years old. And as for Neil's mom, Neil is said to have absolutely loved and adored his mother. She was, quote, very much the mother devoted to her family. Neil also described his mother as beautiful and loving. And many of the women in Neil's life that survived him actually said when they met his mother, she was, in fact, a really nice woman that they all liked as well. As a child, Neil wanted to be an FBI agent or a minister, which is so insane due to how he turns out. So I just wanted to share that. Something, though, switched in Neil in his life when he was around 12 or 13. Um, some very traumatic things began happening all at once. So for one, Neil's dad started to drink really heavily and he would beat on him more. His father would also drag him into bars and make a complete ass out of himself, which I'm sure was so embarrassing for Neil. Like, that's already the age where your parents are embarrassing anyway. Some other life-altering events that Neil outlines is as a boy, he was molested by a church elder. And then sometime in his mid-teens, I'm not exactly sure when, he began having sex with an older woman that made him feel extremely guilty. Then just shy of 17, Neil was sexually assaulted by a sergeant in the army. All of these are significant events from Neil's early life. That's all I could find, really. Now, Neil was married a total of four times, and he had a used car salesman kind of charm. A common misconception I want to clear up about the women who got with Neil, a lot of people think that they are weak, naive, stupid, when in fact, they actually weren't. They were smart. They were strong. But Neil was a really good con man who pretended to be a gentleman that could make your wildest dreams come true. 
Though his first wife doesn't speak out about him, his second wife sings like a canary, y'all, and she'll tell she'll tell you just about everything that you'd want to know about his methods of manipulation and behavior to kind of better understand him. Neil claimed his first wife cheated on him and he caught her in the act and that's why they got divorced, but many close to Neil just have said that's a flat-out lie. Unfortunately, we don't really know what happened, though. As for Neil's second wife, her name is Karen. She was an assistant manager at an outdoor store in Washington, D.C. when they met. So at the time, she was 23. It was the summer of 1981. Neil was 26. And uh, she said that he walked into her store one day. He was manly and he was handsome and he presented himself really well. At the time, he had long blondish hair and he was very easy on the eyes. Okay. Neil was at the store for some hiking gear, and the two chit-chatted about the trail Neil planned to hike on. Karen had actually hiked it before, but Neil needed something that her store didn't carry, so she actually had to refer him elsewhere. And she said as soon as he walked out that door, she regretted not offering him a ride because she knew he was riding the bus. So she literally left her work right then and there, drove to the other store, completely unsure of what she was going to say. And she just told him that she meant to give him a ride. And then she wished him well. And she told him, hey, you know, stop by the store, say hi. Maybe we could go do something outdoorsy together. Then she left and she thought she'd probably never see him again. Unfortunately for her, he showed up the next day at her job looking sharp as can be and asked her out to lunch. So she readily agreed and she took an hour lunch Neil ended up taking her on a picnic and he gave her a supposedly custom-made silver pendant with her store logo on it that he had custom-made overnight after meeting her. The store logo was a wolf howling at the moon. Karen was immediately smitten. And this goes to show you how nice of a guy Neil seemed to be. So Karen at the time was actually dating a really abusive asshole when she met Neil. And Neil is the one who told her she needed to leave that guy and just go ahead and go home and live with her parents. Neil heavily discouraged drug use and alcohol use. So he seemed like a pretty, like he was on the up and up. He also wined and dined Karen and her parents, taking them to five-star restaurants and impressing them by always skipping the waiting line, no matter what, because he knew everybody everywhere they went and he had a reputation of being a big spender so neil and karen end up dating on and off for three years but during those three years neil would literally take off for months at a time it doesn't matter though because every time he came back karen let him come back over time though karen began seeing cracks in neil's facade when she met him he claimed he had a female roommate but insisted everything was strictly platonic However, when Karen went to Neil's apartment, she only saw one king-size bed in one bedroom. So this was a red flag. Another red flag was that when Neil saw women wearing like a lot of makeup or maybe tight form-fitting clothes, he'd whisper things about them, calling them sluts or whores. So that was kind of weird to Karen as well. Then Neil started doing these tests on Karen without telling her, hey, this is a test. One time he asked her, hey, you know, have you ever fantasized about a threesome with two men? And she said, sure, but it's not something she would actually do. It was just a fantasy. So Neil took this question a step farther and he pretended to call a guy over to have a threesome with them. Karen was immediately horrified at the thought and quickly said no and bowed out. To which Neil responded, oh, it was just a test and you passed. 
So they've had some weird moments, but overall things are pretty good. So in 1984, Neil was able to talk Karen into moving to Texas with him for a lucrative job offer that he had. The couple moved and Neil did appear to have a job as far as Karen could tell, but he immediately insisted that she get up and get a job. A month after they moved, they ended up getting married. And Karen said it was from then on that he slowly isolated her from friends and family. Karen said on her wedding night, she found out what happened if she didn't pass Neil's little tests. See, that night she failed a test when he asked her if she'd ever slept with a married man. She said, yeah, she had, but she deeply regretted it. Without warning, Neil slammed her down and started choking her. Then he made her call the ex-lover's wife to confess. And Karen said until their wedding night, she'd never seen that side of Neil before. But when he was done, he was back to being a super nice guy. This became a pattern of behavior, and Neil convinced Karen that she had to be punished for her transgressions, like he was doing her a favor. And Karen actually believed him and would blame herself for Neil's abuse if she failed his test. Karen eventually began to pick up that Neil was a con artist by the way he could insert himself into any conversation with anyone. And he would also do really tacky things like lie to fast food places for free food when he was broke. Karen's parents became so suspicious of Neil and his intentions as time went on that they actually put a special clause in their will barring him from collecting on Karen's inheritance if they ever were to divorce. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a great idea. I think anyone with an inheritance to pass down should take such measures in their will no matter what because you don't know who someone's going to be down the road. Then one day, Neil decided that he and Karen should pack up and move all around the East Coast, using Karen's savings, by the way, until they found somewhere that they wanted to live long term. And Karen agreed. After doing this for some time, they ultimately moved to Tennessee and got an apartment. But Neil was back to doing that thing where he would up and leave for literally months at a time. He claimed, though, that he was leaving to take care of his mom. Karen ended up having to work three jobs to make ends meet when Neil was away. What Karen didn't know, and I don't know how, was that Neil was not always away helping his mom, like he said, and he literally had the neighbors spying on her while he was gone. Like they would keep a journal and log down all of her comings and goings and any sign of what she was doing. Karen knew that Neil was keeping tabs on her, but she didn't know how. Like she knew somehow he kept an eye on her, but I don't think she knew her neighbors were like literally stalking her. And she said that she knew he somehow kept tabs on her though, because if she got home late from work, he would call her on her home phone and be like, why are you home late for work? And then one time she was literally holding a beer in her hand and he said something about her drinking a beer. So I don't know. I do not know what's wrong with those neighbors, but this truly shows how charming and manipulative Neil must have been to get them to spy on this poor woman who's like having to work three jobs to maintain her life because he just keeps leaving. Toward the end of their relationship, Neil disappeared for an entire eight months. Then he came home for two weeks, told Karen he wanted to get a divorce and took off again. Two weeks later, he comes back and he says, no, I don't want to divorce. Instead, I want to make our marriage work. To which Karen agreed. And she said she wanted to make their marriage work because she took her wedding vows really seriously. Merely days after Neil came back and they decided to repair their marriage, Karen came home to a completely empty apartment. No, Neil didn't just leave her high and dry. What he did was he sold all of their belongings so that they can live in a van to save money. And then they could use all of that money to move to Colorado. And I think Neil said Colorado because that's somewhere that Karen really wanted to live. So 
Karen said at this point in time, she literally didn't care about the apartment or the stuff that Neil sold. She just wanted to be with Neil and she readily agreed to live in the van. She'd also always wanted to live in Colorado. So this seemed perfect. She got her man. They're going to go be together all the time. He's not going to leave anymore. And then they're going to move to Colorado. So she was completely blinded by love and I feel so bad for her. But of course, everything was not roses and sunshine like Neil promised. The van was parked in Neil's friend's driveway. Karen was literally the only one who was working. In December of 1985, Neil told her that she had a month to move out of the van, which she did. And they finalized their divorce shortly after Christmas of 1985. Following the divorce, Karen said that she saw Neil one time after that. And he asked her to leave town with him and, you know, go be together. And she refused. He got so mad, he told her, quote, I'm going to fuck over every woman in my path. Y'all ain't nothing but a bunch of whores, end quote. And let me tell you, he followed through on that statement and made it like his life mission, okay? Karen said March 1986, Neil did call and apologize to her for everything and admitted that while he was away, he had not, in fact, been taking care of his mother. He'd been staying with other women, But at this point, Karen was like, whatever. She completely moved on with her life. She ends up getting married Um, in 1989. She has a daughter. So she got, she was done with him. She's done with him. There ain't no going back to Neil. But Neil kept tabs on her and made sure that she knew it for like years. Karen didn't list her number in the public phone book. She changed it seven times in 13 years, but said Neil still managed to get her number and call her from time to time. He had a little code where sometimes he would just let it ring two times and hang up. And he made her aware that was him. That was her way of knowing it was him doing it. And after Karen's parents died, Neil actually called her and asked for money. After Neil's mom died in 1995, he called Karen then to tell her how much he'd always loved her. So I don't know. The phone calls went on for years. They were far and few in between. But what's really strange is Karen had enough sense to stay away from Neil and move on with her life. But she said it was really hard at times to withstand him. Like if it weren't for how difficult it would have been to get him the type of cash he asked her for on multiple occasions following her parents' death, she probably would have given him the money, she said. So he has a really interesting grip on women. But Fortunately, she was able to resist. Karen said over the years, she had caught wind of what Neil had been up to. His family always adored her, and so they kept in touch with her. They sometimes gave her updates on Neil and his chaotic life. But after the divorce from Karen, Neil actually moves on, and he marries another woman named Karen. He completely drains her savings account as well before divorcing her. So I think he married Karen number two from 1988 to 1990. And at the time he was living in West Virginia and together he moved with Karen number two to Colorado. So Colorado is where Neil is going to remain throughout the rest of his life in crimes. After divorcing Karen number two in 1990, Neil met a 19-year-old stripper named Jennifer in 1992. Neil was well known at the strip club she worked at because he spent so much money there. He was an excellent tipper everywhere he went and he was very charming and respectful, which you don't see much of in strip clubs, I'm guessing. Jennifer never thought she could be with someone like Neil, but he took a liking to her and nicknamed her, quote, baby pint because she was so small and petite. 
Neil asked her out September 29th, 1992. Jessica was 19 and Neil was 37 or 38. Jennifer had never enjoyed being a stripper. She longed to be married and taken out of that life. So someone like Neil was a dream come true for her. So she thought. Two days following their first date, Jennifer actually moved in with Neil. He was very romantic. He'd make her bubble baths. He'd buy her nice things. He'd take her out and spend a lot of money on her. Plus, Neil always had things like nice cars. The only thing that wasn't really nice, which I think kind of surprised Jennifer, was his apartment. But Jennifer was welcome to everything except one small closet that Neil kept locked, and that was good enough for her. Jennifer was young. She was naive. She was too smitten to think twice about everything. Then she got pregnant. Not knowing better, Jennifer thought all her dreams were coming true. She was elated. They'd be a family. She could quit stripping and be a mom and a wife and just do what moms and wives do. But that's not what happened. Neil became extremely jealous and possessive of her. Once she went out with her gay best friend and Neil packed up all her shit and kicked her out. Jennifer begged him to let her stay and she would do whatever he wanted. So he did end up letting her stay, but God, did he make her life miserable. For one, he's a serial cheater, right? He literally even been seeing some of the strippers that she used to work with before she got pregnant. And if she pissed him off, he would literally kick her out and go make her live at her mom's for weeks before allowing her to come back home while he did whatever he wanted all the time, 24-7. Despite the rocky relationship, Jennifer agreed to marry him when she was about five months pregnant, and they went and they eloped in Vegas, February of 1993. Still, Jennifer thought she was going to get everything that she'd ever wanted, but really she just became a prisoner. Neil would give her $1,000 a week spending money in the beginning of their relationship, but she wasn't allowed to go anywhere without him or one of her sisters with her. Like, she literally couldn't even go do laundry or go grocery shopping alone. She, though, wasn't allowed to ask Neil what he was doing or try and contact and bother him while he was at work at all. And if she did anything that he didn't like, he would beat her up. The romance stops. The $1,000 stop. It's just misery. So Jennifer gives birth July 24th, 1993. So today that baby around now would be 30, 30. And by the way, Neil was not there for the birth of this baby. Jennifer's sister had to take her to the hospital and when they called Neil at work to tell him Jennifer was going into labor he was really annoyed and basically told them too bad and that they weren't supposed to bother him at work. Around 10 p.m. that night he stopped in at the hospital but Jennifer was still in labor so Neil went to the bar and showed up the next morning to take Jennifer and their daughter home from the hospital. Of course, Neil used the baby as a way to further control Jennifer. He threatened to take the baby away if she didn't behave the way he wanted. Neil was extremely paranoid that Jennifer was going to cheat on him. So he just literally wouldn't allow her to do anything at all. She wasn't even allowed to be a normal wife. She, the woman only wanted to just stay home and cook and be a wife and be a mom and have a family. But Neil wouldn't even let her cook dinner. Instead, he insisted that they order takeout or pizza. Then sex changed. Sex became when and how Neil wanted it. No more romancing her, no more bubble baths. And then you guys know what's next. The trick questions came in, okay? And it was just like with his wife, Karen. Neil would ask a trick question about Jennifer's sexual past or desires. And if he didn't like her answer, he would literally hurt her. 
Jennifer was smart, though. Like, she knew what he was doing, so she would always give the right answer that wouldn't upset him. Then some things start to shift with Neil during his marriage to Jessica. So this is when Neil starts getting into some like really kinky sex stuff and he takes her to swinger parties, which she absolutely hated. Okay. She was not a kinkster. She was not a swinger. And around this time, Neil became really aggressive when it came to sex between the two of them. At one of the swinging parties, Neil blindfolded Jennifer and without her knowledge or consent, he allowed another man to penetrate her. Jennifer could immediately tell that it was not Neil and she began kicking and screaming. The man who was penetrating her was horrified and adamantly apologized because he thought this is what she wanted. Um, That was like the code was you blindfold and have the door open. This was part of the kinky swinger sex party lifestyle. So that guy was horrified. Neil got so mad about what happened at the swinger party that he made Jennifer go live with her mom for a few weeks again, but this time she couldn't take her daughter. And when Jennifer returned, she was just really freaked out by Neil at this point. And she was actually alarmed that he'd been harming their daughter because she said that before she left to go to her mom's for a couple of weeks, her daughter loved bath time, but now the poor little girl would throw a tantrum if Jennifer tried to bathe her. So, ah. Uh, getting suspicious. November of 1994, Jennifer reached her boiling point. See, Neil had left her and the baby at home for days with very little food and water and diapers, but wouldn't allow Jennifer to leave the house to go get those items when she ran out of them. So he called her around 3 a.m. and Jennifer heard a woman in the background and she got reasonably upset and said something along the lines of use a condom or wrap it up or something like that and that statement pissed Neil off so he let her know that he was on his way home and that he was angry Jennifer was so scared that she called police so they could come watch as she packed the bag and left with her daughter safely Neil refused to let her take the car so she ended up taking a cab to her mom's and Jennifer and her daughter stayed gone until May of 1995 then Neil begged them to come back and he even got them a new apartment so she does she goes back and she said shortly after she moved in Neil told her that he embezzled $70,000 for the company he was working at and he almost went to prison but he got out of it because the company agreed not to press charges if Neil just handed over his share of it after hearing that Jennifer was officially done with Neil for good that was the end of it she left him then with nothing more than her daughter and the contents of her diaper bag Interesting that that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't know why, but I that just shocked me. As for Neil, he was a terrible father. He paid about $350 a month in child support, but he only made personal contact with his daughter like three times her entire life. A divorce was granted to Jennifer August of 1996. The money train didn't stop for Neil, though. No, no. And not because he got a lucrative job. He was a con artist. He continued conning women out of their life savings and did this to multiple women at a time. I don't think police or anyone really knows the number of financial victims Neil truly had. But something changed for Neil between 1996 and 1997 that would cause him to go from a thief to a murderer. Buckle up because we are at the part where Neil meets cons and murders multiple people in a very short amount of time. 
So it's the summer of 1996 when Neil meets 44-year-old Rebecca Holberton. She's going to be his first known murder victim, and he's actually able to con her into letting him move in with her. She had a townhouse that she was about to remodel, and over the course of the next two years, Neil stole $60,000 from her. He told Rebecca that he needed the money for lawyer fees and to get all of his money out of probate, also to gain custody of his daughter. Neil promised he would pay her everything and then some. Like, he promised to pay her a shit ton of money. And she believed him. Meanwhile, December of 1997, while still living with Rebecca and sucking her financially dry like a leech, Neil met 48-year-old Candace Walters. Candace was a bartender, and Neil told her he was an ex-hitman for the mob about to inherit $52 million because he spared a man's life. The gist of what he was saying was rather than killing this guy he was hired to murder, Neil told the man about the hit out on him and let him go. In return, the man left Neil his entire estate and fortune when he died. Okay. For added sympathy, Neil told Candace he'd finally be able to get custody of his daughter back from her evil mom once everything was legally his. It was Neil's fake dedication to his young daughter that worked on Candace and Rebecca. Neil also told Candace he would reward her financially once the money came in for not telling anyone about his part of being a hitman. Next, Neil meets Angela Fight. So in my opinion, Angela Fight doesn't really fit with Neil's typical MO because she's a newly separated single mom of two small children who only escaped her abusive husband four months prior to meeting Neil around March of 1998 and she didn't have a lot of money. So Neil's role in Angela's life is more of a captain save a hoe. They did act as if they were boyfriend and girlfriend, but I don't think their relationship was ever confirmed or made official. Neil did do things, though, to be really helpful to Angela, things that, you know, a boyfriend would probably do. Like, for instance, when her husband or ex-husband Mike refused to give her back the minivan, Neil was like, no problem. I'm going to use my gangster ways to get your minivan back, which he did. Um, The minivan didn't run anymore when Mike was done with it, but Neil did still get it back. Neil promised Angela the world also. He made it seem like he was going to take her from rags to riches. Angela was only 28. Like I said, she had two small kids. She just left a horrible relationship with an abuser. And she had very little money. So she was pretty vulnerable to uh, this knight in shining armor. Mike said that his kids didn't like Neil, though. The kids said Neil just ignored them when they were around. But Neil made Angela feel safe from her ex-husband and gave the impression that he was going to provide things that she needed, like a car and housing. As I mentioned before, for Neil to keep these women, it seemed like he would find out what their greatest desires are and promise to make those happen for them. He told Candace he would get them matching Toyota 4Runners they could drive to Vegas, where he had a mansion for her just down the road from his own private mansion. And to top it off, he even promised her $2.5 million, half in cash and half to be wired to her bank account directly. He even showed her photos of these mansions that he had acquired for them, but it wouldn't happen. Okay, so we have Rebecca. That's who he's getting all this money from. We have Candace. That's the bartender. We have Angela. That's the single mom. And now we're going to enter Beth and Suzanne. So Suzanne and Beth were friends and co-workers. Beth was an older divorced mom of three children with an awful ex-husband who is recovering just from the chaos of her life. So she ended up moving in with her friend Suzanne and they frequented a bar called Shipwreck. This is where they met Neil. 
Beth had a boyfriend named Jimmy at the time and thought it would be fun to set Suzanne up with Neil, though. Beth planned a double date with her, Jimmy, Neil, and Suzanne. Suzanne was rather hesitant because Neil was a bit older than her, but agreed to go out with him anyway. They all met at the Sheraton Hotel, and it was really nice because upon arriving at the hotel, Beth and Suzanne and Jimmy were all catered to. Neil and whomever he was with got A-list treatment because, remember, Neil's a really good tipper, you know, tipping people with the money he'd conned off vulnerable women. That's Neil's style. He always got preferential treatment, though, for tipping. Suzanne and Beth loved this A-list treatment from the get-go. They began spending a lot more time with Neil. Eventually, Beth and Jimmy broke up, and so her and Suzanne began spending even more time with Neil. They were with him all the time. Suzanne said Neil would spoil them. For instance, on Suzanne's birthday, Neil gave her hundreds of dollars just so that she had ample money to go party with and do whatever she wanted. But Suzanne and Neil never hooked up like Beth thought they would. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's Beth who ultimately starts some sort of relationship with Neil, not Suzanne. I'm not positive what their connection entailed, meaning I don't know if they would have sex or if him and Beth were just intimate friends emotionally. I'm not sure, but I do think they had some kind of connection there. Neil told the two women that he was wealthy and he had a home in Vegas and in Denver, but he refused to go live in the mansion he had in Vegas until he won custody of his daughter so he could live there with her. Of course, none of this was true. He always pulled the single dad missing his daughter terrible ex-wife card. Neil showed the women the photos of this mansion that he had in Vegas, same one that he showed Candace. He kept it in a binder, okay? So I guess he carried around with him. I don't know. He also gave Suzanne false hope by discussing her coming to work for him in his mortgage lending business, which didn't exist, by the way. Suzanne said that she did believe him about the job, but in the back of her head, it did all seem too good to be true, which she's going to find out it was in the most heinous and unfortunate way. Beth and Suzanne said they actually met Angela fight once. Neil had invited the two women, being Beth and Suzanne, out for a drink for his birthday And when they got to the bar, they were actually surprised to see somebody with Neil, and that was Angela. So that's how they met her. The meeting stuck out as odd to Suzanne because she said that Neil treated Angela like a girlfriend. And this was around the same time that Neil was kind of acting sweet on Beth, like Beth was going to be his girlfriend. So I don't know. It was really weird. And uh, they left after one drink, Beth and Suzanne did. Neil seemed to be juggling things okay until everything came to a head early June of 1998 when Rebecca Holberton decided she'd had enough of Neil and she was going to kick his ass out of her townhouse. And that's a big deal because Rebecca is Neil's meal ticket. So June 30th, Neil likely knew Rebecca was ready to give him the boot. He told her that he had a surprise for her. That morning, Neil had Rebecca write out several checks to all of her creditors, totaling $56,000. This was to make her think that he'd finally be getting the fortune he'd been waiting on these two years. Mind you, the whole reason Rebecca was bankrolling him. And now she would be able to pay back all of her debt and reap the benefits that Neil promised her. After having her write out all those checks, Neil was like, okay, I'm going to go run a couple errands. And his errands consisted of buying lava soap. He purchased four eye bolts, duct tape, nylon rope, and an almost eight pound splitting maul. So a splitting maul is a part axe, part sledgehammer. On one hand, you have like the long handle. And at the top of it, it literally has an axe 
facing one way and a sledgehammer facing the other way. So you can use either tool. When Neil got back from the store, he had Rebecca sit in a chair in the middle of the living room. He opened a bottle of champagne to celebrate the big surprise he had for the big surprise he went out and got. Rebecca assumed the surprise was probably money because he remember he'd always promised her a fortune in exchange for her generosity. Super excited, Rebecca sits down in a chair and Neil laid a briefcase on her lap and told her to hold it. Then Neil placed a blanket over her head before he went to fetch the surprise. He didn't want her to see it. The surprise came when he hit her in the back of the head with a hammer side of the mall. Neil used so much force, her skull caved in and fractured. Then Neil wrapped her head in plastic to contain the blood, bound her hands and feet before wrapping her in black plastic like a mummy and then just sitting her corpse against the wall. July 3rd, 1998, just days after the murder of Rebecca, Candace told someone that Neil had a surprise and he was going to be taking her to pick up her brand new Ford Runner also. She said it had been delivered to his townhouse. Now, mind you, this was actually Rebecca's townhouse, but Neil took it over after murdering her. So Neil takes Candace inside the townhouse when they get there, and he told her that he had another surprise he wanted to give her before she saw the forerunner. So Candace goes in, and she sits down, and she doesn't even notice the spots of blood from the murder of Rebecca or Rebecca's, you know, torso wrapped in plastic against the wall. She's just very excited for her surprise. Neil sits her down in a chair and he tries to put a blanket over her head like he did with Rebecca, but Candace refused because she didn't want her hair messed up. Neil complied, just making her promise that she wouldn't look because he wanted to go get her surprise now. Her surprise was also the mall, which he violently struck her in the head with. Candace never had a clue. He struck her a total of four times before then urinating on her head and shoulders. I believed he hacked her up a bit and then tossed a blanket over her corpse. <sighs> That's horrible. Sometime later that same day, Beth calls Suzanne and said Neil wanted to take her to Vegas for the weekend to discuss his mortgage company offer. Suzanne refused to go for an entire weekend away with Neil, though. She agreed that she would go Sunday, July 5th and return Monday the 6th. Those plans were set in motion, but Neil still wanted to take the women out that night, Friday, July 3rd. This is literally hours after he murdered Candace, by the way. Around 7 p.m., Neil showed up on foot to Beth and Suzanne's apartment, claiming his truck had a flat tire. They ordered a pizza while they waited for his truck tire to be changed, and during that, Neil shockingly dropped to one knee and proposed to Beth literally out of nowhere. Suzanne was really surprised because she didn't know that the relationship was even serious enough for a proposal. Then a limo pulled up and Neil explained nothing was actually wrong with his truck. He just wanted them to ride in style that night. It was a surprise. Sometime that evening, Suzanne told Beth that she was really surprised by the proposal and Beth explained it was all just a joke. So that whole situation is very bizarre in my opinion. Like, I don't know what's up and down with this dynamic between Suzanne, Beth, and Neil. Anyways, the group was having a great night and went out to a gentleman's club for dinner. It was an upscale kind, restaurant and bar on one side, strip club on the other side. Neil had plenty of cash because he'd withdrawn $1,287 from Candace Walter's account and then withdrew another $400 from her account at an ATM during dinner. And if you're like, oh wow, what kind of restaurant has an ATM? One attached to a strip club definitely has an ATM. 
The three partied together till 3 a.m. And then Neil went home with Beth and Suzanne, but left sometime the next morning. Then Sunday, July 5th rolls around. Neil was supposed to pick Suzanne up at 7. They would drive to the airport and off to Vegas they would go. But Neil got there a bit early and told Suzanne he wanted to show her a surprise he had for Beth before they left town. Neil drives to his townhouse and pulled into the garage. Then Neil shut the door behind him and Suzanne. Before going in, Neil explained he wanted Suzanne to rehearse with him exactly how he planned to surprise Beth. And to go along, Suzanne agreed to be blindfolded and duct taped. Neil was so excited Suzanne complied easily and he led her into the townhouse. That's a really bizarre request. Like, I think it would be really hard to coerce me into letting someone blindfold and duct tape me. Anybody. Anybody in the whole world. Like, not from my car into a house. I don't know. Neil led Suzanne to a room and sat her on what she felt was a mattress. And it was. Then he tied her up saying this was part of the big surprise he had for Beth. Suzanne was tied spread eagle to this mattress and then she began crying. Neil told her to shut up because he didn't want her to see the mean side of him. Then he cut off all her clothes and removed the blindfold and duct tape. She was horrified. The room and mattress were filthy. Nothing like she'd anticipated wealthy Neil's home to look like. Then Neil placed a piece of bone with hair still attached to it on her stomach. This was a fragment from Rebecca's skull. Next, Neil walked to a nearby part of the room and lifted a blanket showing parts of a lifeless body. It was Candace's leg with the sock and shoe still attached. Then Neil kicked a black plastic bag and told him it was a body too, which it was. It was Rebecca's body. Next, Neil taped Suzanne's mouth touched her all over and told her he would be back. He said that she needed to be really quiet though because the other people that lived in the townhouse were really demented and would likely rape and kill her if they knew she was down there. This wasn't true but what is Suzanne supposed to think at this point? Like she doesn't know if that's true or not. Then he covered Suzanne up with a blanket completely and played country music on the TV before leaving. He couldn't have been gone too long because she said two music videos and two commercial breaks went by before he returned. Then when he returned, Suzanne heard a voice she recognized. It was Angela Fight. Neil had asked her how her day was as he bound Angela with duct tape to a chair. I don't think Angela knew she was in deep shit. He lured her there under false pretenses as well. I'm just not sure what surprise she anticipated. Once she was secured to the chair, Neil showed Angela the dead bodies of Rebecca and Candace before pulling the blanket off Suzanne, who was tied up naked. It was then that Angie knew Neil was not surprising her with a townhouse or a car or anything like that, and she knew she wouldn't likely make it out of that townhouse alive. She even looked at Susan and said something like, quote, we're not going to make it out of here alive, are we? Neil gave both the women a cigarette, and then he said he was going to go get Angie a treat. When he returned, he had the maul in his hand, and he struck Angela six times in the head, ultimately killing her. She had no idea it was coming. The cigarette Angela had in her mouth before Neil struck her fell on the ground, and it was still lit, so Neil picked it up and finished it. Suzanne said that she could literally hear the blood spilling out of Angie's body onto the floor. Then Neil undressed himself, laid by Suzanne, untied her hand, one of them. Once stimulated, he untied her the rest of the way with a gun pointed at her, and he went and he stood right next to Angela Fight's lifeless body, 
and he instructed Suzanne to come over and give him oral sex. She complied and said that her face was literally a foot away from Angela and the gun was pointed on Suzanne's temple the entire time. That's horrifying. Then Neil took her back to the mattress and raped her. After he finished, Neil ties Susan up again, naked, to the mattress, but this time he bound her feet and only tied up one of her arms. She asked him for a blanket, claiming she was cold, but she said she really just felt vulnerable. He complied, and then she asked if he would lay by her, which he agreed. The reason she asked him to lay by her was so that he couldn't sneak up on her like he did the other women before he murdered them. She even held his hand. Call it crazy, but I think that was a really good idea. She said she held his hand so that way if he got up, if she accidentally fell asleep, she would feel him move from the bed. The next morning, Neil untied Suzanne. He let her go to the bathroom alone for the first time and had her freshen up and change her clothes even. Then they left and drove to Suzanne and Beth's apartment so Suzanne could pack up a few more things. I wonder if Neil's original plan was to make it look like him and Suzanne ran away for a trip and she just never came back or what. But the plan changed after they got to the apartment. Instead of like leaving town or anything, they went to a restaurant where Neil ordered them both lunch and a drink. Then they did some shopping, went to the movie rental store, rented a movie, and went back to Susanna Beth's apartment and just hung out. Together, they called Beth and gushed about how great their trip to Vegas went. Neil told Suzanne that they could tell Beth everything after she got home and they all three watched the movie together. And that's what they did. When the movie was over, they went to the kitchen table where Neil brought a tape recorder and told Suzanne to tell Beth everything that happened while they were gone. Suzanne had great difficulty, so Neil actually has to take over and tell the women everything from start to finish, including the murder of Rebecca and Candace, and then everything that happened when he picked up Suzanne. Suzanne and Beth said Neil's rant went on for hours, and after everyone went to bed, yeah, like he went on this rant, and then they all went to bed. Okay, after everyone went to bed, Suzanne said that she just stayed in her room as long as possible the next day to avoid Neil. But luckily, Neil had to go run some errands and threaten the women if they called anyone or tried to escape, more people were going to die. Of course, the women are terrified, so they actually comply and stay in the apartment all day long and just barely speak to each other. Before the women could come up with a plan, though, Neil returned, and he actually told them if they'd be more comfortable, they could call a man to come over and be with them. So they, yeah, they called someone. They called their 34-year-old friend, David Kane, and when he arrived at the apartment, Neil showed him his gun and said he had to choose to either stay or leave then. But if he left, there would be consequences. So, of course, the guy stays. And they all sit at the table and Neil plays the super long, traumatic recording for Dave so he could understand what was going on. Then Neil had Dave drive all of them to the strip club and the group stayed there all night till closing. What the fuck is going on? So then everybody wakes up in Beth and Suzanne's apartment Wednesday morning. Neil said that he was going to be leaving to commit suicide and he gave Beth, Suzanne and Dave specific instructions. So Suzanne was told to call 911 and tell them what happened. And then all three of them were instructed to go sit on the front lawn of the apartment complex. After Suzanne made the 911 call, she was too scared to go sit outside because she thought Neil might be setting them up and possibly attempt to like shoot them outside on the lawn or something. 
Police did come, though, after the 911 call, and oh, the nightmare was over. Something that was really interesting to me that the women didn't know is police had actually been to the townhouse earlier that day and found the heinous crimes that took place at Rebecca's. Police stumbled across the crime scene because after Rebecca Holberton was MIA, someone called for a welfare check on her townhouse. Could you imagine going to that welfare check and then that 911 call comes in and all the pieces kind of come together? Wow. So Suzanne tells police everything and July 9th, Neil is arrested. Neil was forthcoming with his crimes like immediately. He did attempt to embellish some things though. Like he said he'd killed as many as 500 people, which is extremely unlikely. It is widely believed though that he had committed more than just these three murders. And I think that as well. Neil's trial began September 1999. He represented himself he entered a plea of guilty as hell. Neil was sentenced by a three-judge panel court and ultimately given three death sentences, one for each murder. However, in 2003, his death sentences were commuted to life in prison because Colorado ruled death sentences from a three-panel judge was unconstitutional. William Lee Neal is in the Colorado State Penitentiary. He has a profile on Pinnacon. Um, if you pen pal him, just know you are seriously crazy. And wow, what a freaking roller coaster, you guys. Is that not wild? Thank you so much for listening. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. He had to have been a charmer. He had to have been a really convincing person. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.